I didn't think the Raptors were uh, going to miss the playoffs like some experts thought. Like, that was just, uh, that was just <laughs> ludicrous. But I didn't expect this Raptors, to be, uh, Raptors team to be a two-seed in the East. I did have the Raptors finishing fourth or fifth. I did believe that they were going to be a middle-of-the-pack team. So the fact that they exceeded expectations and ended up you know, having the second-best record uh, in the East and tied for the second-best record in all of the NBA, like that is something that I don't think anybody here in the city saw coming. Uh, we Opulent Inventory, our proud partners here on the show. Now you can finally have the Apple product times the Apple guys. That's right, from AirPods to iPhones to MacBooks to Apple Watches to trade-ins and much more. Now you can have the Apple product of your dreams. Promo code podcast gets you 20% off. That's right, 20% off on any Apple item. Visit Opulent Inventory, Nash and Guardian. Those are great guys on all social media platforms, and on Instagram. Now, let's head back to the show. Legend that is John Thompson Sr. As if the world could get any worse. As if 2020 could get any worse. The legend, the myth himself, the founder, the godfather of Georgetown basketball, the pioneer for all of these minority coaches, and not only the collegiate game, but also the pros as well. The world of sports lost a legend and John Thompson the third. Welcome you guys inside the studio Z, myself, Sebi, alongside Michael Gray. I'm here on the Sebi Podcast Radio Show. And Mike, I know this is a, a man that you've had the pleasure of, of meeting several times covering Georgetown basketball for sure. Absolutely, man. You know, he was a great brother. Uh, this year was my first year covering Georgetown basketball, and every game that I that he every game that I covered, he sat in the. Um, I walk out the tunnel, I walk onto the court, and you see John Thompson Senior right there in the same spot, right there next to his wife. You know, he was very nice. Anybody that came up to him and they wanted to shake his hand or just say how you're doing, he was always um, willing to talk or willing to have a conversation with you. He was just, he was just a good dude, man. And then you know, the more you see him, the more he sees you putting in work. He he might come over to you, say, "Yo, good job, man. Keep doing your thing. Keep doing it." But what John Thompson Sr. meant to Georgetown uh, basketball is, is 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 immense. I mean, he really made Georgetown feel like an HBCU with all the brothers and, and people that he put in place and people that he looked out for. We all know the story of how impactful and what he did for guys like Allen Iverson, uh, Patrick Ewing, and things of that nature. So th- this guy this this guy is the epitome of class, and his his death hurt. I mean, I, when I found out about it yesterday. I was in shock, but it um it didn't it didn't it, it felt like a celebration of life because of all that he put out into the world. You know, it was 
he he lived a very long life and he did his due diligence while he was on this earth and he looked out for his community like no other from the coach's perspective and you see everybody uh when he found out the news they're throwing the towels over there uh, left shoulder, just like he did back in the day. And, you know, obviously being the first Aboriginal head coach to win a, a national championship in college in 1984, his, his legacy will reign true in Georgetown sports. And, you know, he's, he, it, 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 was, it, it didn't feel like a disappointment. It felt like a celebration of life because of all that he gave back to us. And the DMV had heavy, heavy hearts yesterday. No doubt. No doubt there for sure, man. You talk about you know, Georgetown from whatever it was back in the early 70s to when Thompson came in and, and basically recreated Georgetown basketball into a powerhouse in oh, the yeah. Big East. And, and we know what they had. And then they started getting the likes and the products of Patrick Ewing and the likes of Alonzo Mourning and Daikembe Mutombo. And of course, the answer himself in Allen Iverson. And they'll all tell you, Mike, the one thing that stood out to them from John Thompson is how he taught them how to be leaders of men rather than any X's and O on the court, whether that be, you know, offensively or being there defensively. The thing that stood out to them the most was him as a life mentor and teaching them to be great leaders of men. And you saw that in the speech when AI got inducted to the hall of fame, the basketball hall of fame, he attributed all his success throughout his career to one man and that one man was john thompson senior because he was the guy that took a chance on him out of high school alan iverson was a guy that was you know highly recruited but there was an incident that happened that backed off on a lot of uh, yeah. collegiate uh, uh, institutions mm -hmm. and then I, I guess john thompson was the guy that took a chance on him and and he basically credits all his career and all of his success to that and and that's the type of man that john thompson was we remember him as as a leader, um, the legacy that he had on and off the court. We remember the towel that you put over your, your left or right shoulder and and basically paved the way for young minority coaches like Alvin Gentry, like Monty Williams. Monty Williams yesterday just shedding tears, Mike. Um, yep. So John Thompson's legacy will forever be remembered in, in, in the world of sports. And not only that, but in basketball for sure. Oh, absolutely, man. And and it's just like like you say, it didn't it didn't feel as much of a disappointment as it is a celebration of life. When you put when you put that much energy and you put that much into your community and you put that much energy into the youth and helping bring young uh young kings into becoming young men. And it was it's just special it's just special to hear about it. You you see the respect from all of his from all the players he's coached, you see the respect from them. Like when I go to Georgetown games, I'm looking around and I just see the 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 love that that the Georgetown fans show, that Patrick Ewan showed, that his former players show him every time they walk by. You just he, every time they have a conversation with him, you just you can just see the respect and the aura that he and, and the energy that he gives off. It's 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 special, man. It was it was more like a celebration of life and understanding how much he how impactful he was in the entire DMV community. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt for sure. We know about Anthony Hardaway in Memphis, what he's meant for Memphis basketball in the early 90s. But that was Patrick Ewing and Thompson and their great, great runs in mid to late 80s there for sure. And now, obviously, Patrick Ewing is the head coach of George Georgetown mm. basketball and a lot of fuel for that team as they look ahead to potentially a season um, that is under negotiations here. But from 
bad news, we switch here to great news, Mike. And uh, we want to talk about the NBA playoffs. There's a lot of things that's been going on. Two game sevens, the dazzling and mesmerizing talent of Jamal Murray and also Donovan Mitchell. I don't think it's Utah versus Denver no more, Mike. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much Mitchell versus Murray, both guys have put up 50 twice already in this series so get your popcorn ready you if you want to order in some pizza you want to kick back and rely tonight is the night it is must watch tv it's going to be a movie tonight in game seven and from what we've seen thus far in this series who do you have in game seven and why wow it's tough i'm so up and i'm so i'm so up in the air about this game seven because you know like you said it has been it has seemed like for the most part of this series has been Donovan Mitchell versus Jamal Murray, but Donovan Mitchell cannot afford that for that to happen because when when Donovan Mitchell goes off, especially in these last two games, you've noticed that he hasn't he hasn't had the requisite help from his others the way Jamal Murray has. Jamal Murray has had more consistent help when he's gone off for his his big time games than than Donovan Mitchell has. It, it was a stretch in that game uh, in that game six the other day where Donovan Mitchell was just absolutely on fire trying to carry the load and keep his team in the game um, down the stretch of the third and fourth quarter, but he had no help at all. You know, uh, Jamal Murray, yes, he closed the deal, but he also had help from guys in the game. You know, other pieces, Tony Craig, uh, Morris, it was so many different guys that were able to help facilitate him, and he was just able to close the deal, and he was absolutely unconscious in the fourth quarter. But if I, if I had to choose somebody to win this game, I'm going to go with the Utah Jazz just because I see, I see him getting more help from his others. Now, Donovan Mitchell is going to do his thing. He's going to ball out. He's probably going to have another big-time performance scoring-wise. But Rudy Gobert is going to show up to the table. Mike Conley is, is going to produce for him. Joe Ingles, guys like guys like these are going to produce. Royce O'Neal, the, the, the others are going to help him. And I think this Utah defensive schemes and their, and their defense is what's going to help them in this game. Because in game seven, we know palms get sweaty, things get tight. But uh, it's going to be a dog fight because Jamal Murray has shown over his career, it's one thing I pay, I'm paying attention to with Jamal Murray, Sebi, is that, yeah, he's he's continues continued to ascend, ascend as a point guard and as a player in this league. But one thing I've noticed about him, especially these last two playoffs, when the going gets tight and when this when this team is in a do or die situation, he finds a way to have a huge performance and show yes, up, whether whether it's it, it, throughout the entire game or whether it's in the fourth quarter where he just all of a sudden finds a way to get hot. This brother has an uncanny ability to uh, to show up and to show up tremendously, and we saw it in Game Six. I mean, that fifty point performance—it seemed like late down the stretch in the fourth quarter. Every time Utah was trying to close the gap and get into the game, he couldn't miss. He just put the, put them to sleep and gave them a chance in the Game Seven. So it's going to be a dog fight. Utah is going to is going to get everything they possibly can from this Denver team, and but I, I would I would have to go with the Utah Utah Jazz because um it, it, it's, it's a lot. It takes a lot to come back from a three-one lead, and you, I, I feel Utah has the experience and the coaching and, and, and enough players around them to get it done tonight. Here's a couple things: um, only eleven teams has come back from a three-one deficit. Last team doing that was actually the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers, down three-one with LeBron James, Kyrie Love, and, and Kyrie Irving. And not only that, Mike. Um, Michael Jordan was the last guy to have three straight forty-point games in the playoffs. That actually has been eclipsed now because Jamal Murray has done that in games four, five, and six. But more importantly, what I've noticed is the first three games, if you were to tell me, first four games actually, 
uh, when Utah took that 3-1 lead, if you were to tell me what team has been the most surprising first-round opponent, I'd say the Utah Jazz because I thought when, you know, Bogdanovich went down, that was their best, you know, score opposite Don and Mitchell. But that's a 20-point score and their best shooter. Mm-hmm. I would tell you that, you know, Utah is dead, especially with, you know, the fragile locker room between, you know, the the friction that's been going on with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. And all of a sudden, you know, Quinn Snyder, I've been raving about him for years. What he's done for that franchise, revitalizing them. And they were shooting. I'm sizzling hot, Mike, from three-point land. And Utah doesn't even shoot that much. And they were making and hitting threes. And they were up 3-1. So if you were to tell me what team was the best opponent uh, through the first round at that point, I would tell you Utah has impressed me a lot. But in these last three games, Michael Malone is making adjustments, Mike. What he's done is he's taken out guys, young guys like Michael Porter Jr. Mm-hmm. and Torrey and Craig, guys that have not been there and done that, um, who have just, you know, guys that haven't had the postseason experience. And what he's done mm-hmm. is he's brought in Jeremy Grant and also Monte Morris off the bench to fill in those starting role. And that pretty much kind of changed the series because that's when Jamal Murray started getting help. You know what I'm saying? And we're not saying that Michael Porter isn't a great player. Or, or or that, you know, Victorian Craig doesn't have promise, but, you know, you brought in veterans like uh, Jerry and Grant, who's been in meaningful games in OKC and, and played and also with the Sixers to come in and play that role. And these guys have just been instrumental. And I think that was kind of like the climax of the series. That That's what altered the series there. And obviously, Jamal Murray did his thing. But um, going into this game seven, I think that now it's time for Quinn Snyder to punch back. What adjustment is he going to make? You can't rely on Donovan Mitchell to carry you like he's done all serious. Somebody has to step up. Is it Joe Ingles? Is it Jordan Clarkson? He's a guy that off the bench averages 15 points a game, but in the last three games has struggled. So I, I think it's time for Quinn Snyder to punch back. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And I, and I see it happening because this this is a team that's battle-tested in their experience and they're ready for this. They're prime ready for this moment. And I see them... Uh, getting the getting getting the job done and, and winning in a nail body. I mean, this is such a toss up, Sevy, because like you said, after the first four games of this series, when just dominated two, two games two, two to three, and then one in game four. I mean, you 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 just wondered how how long the series was going to be. It looked, it looked like a five game series because of how dominant they looked. But you have to credit the Denver Nuggets because we knew offensively they can score with a lot of teams because of how deep they are and how many different players they have that can put the ball in the hole. But when they make the choice and make the decision to play lock-up defense and use that length that they have in their favor, oh, man, this is a special team that can take it far and go uh, go even further. So you, we saw that in game six, especially through the second and third quarter. And um, if we see that defensive stretch uh, th- throughout, throughout time, in, in in this game seven, it could bowl, uh bad for Utah. But one of the Utah's uh, biggest keys in dominating games two and three was the pick and roll between Donovan Mitchell or Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert. Right. They need to get back to that pick and roll with Rudy Gobert, get him some easy touches in the paint, that would, which will give him even more active on the defensive side of the ball. And when he's when he's um when he's active on the defensive side and holding Golden down the paint, that gets them out of transition. And Utah is actually is actually a very good team scoring the basketball in transition. So it, it all depends on who's able to play their game, match up their style, and 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 whoever does that is going to be able to come out with the victory tonight. Yep, no doubt, one hundred percent. I think that they'll be able to do that too. The winner of that series gets ready for the Clippers, who won a brutal Game Six. 
in a six-game series against the Mavericks. And the next matchup here that we have is Chris Paul delivered in game six. What Mikey was just clinical, 15 points in that fourth quarter, 28 overall, when a night where Schroeder struggled and Shea Gilgis Alexander struggled. But one thing about this Thunder thing, Mike, they don't give up. They're gritty, they're feisty, and they've been the best fourth quarter team and point differential all season long. And Chris Paul, the catalyst that he is, the leader, the Hall of Famer that we think he is, was engineered and fueled that comeback. Now we've got a game seven for all the marbles, right? The narratives is everywhere. You got Chris Paul traded from Houston for Russell Westbrook, bad blood between these two teams. How do we see that developing? Oh, man, it's going to be special. I mean, what, like like you said, what we've seen from this OKC, OKC team has been gritty and tough and, and special to watch. There's an old saying that show me your leader and, and it'll show me the, the attitude. Show me the attitude of your leader and it'll tell me the attitude of your entire team. And the attitude of Chris Paul is he has a dog mentality. He has a never say die mentality. And it trickles down to the rest of this team. You've seen it all season long. They've been one of the best teams in the fourth quarter because not only do they have a closer, but they know how to keep it tight in the end and they just give him the ball and let him either create or score for them when he's assertive. And that's what Chris Paul was yesterday. When Chris Paul is assertive in this series, he's averaged 27, 28 points a game. They're 3-0. and when he, when he hasn't been as assertive as much, that that's when that's when they lose and they've gotten blown out. But all three of their losses have been have been uh, double digit losses. But every time it's a tight game in the fourth quarter and a close game, uh, the o- o- Oklahoma City has found a way to pull out with the victory because they don't fold under pressure. They're they're one of the few teams in the league that knows how to close the game out in the fourth quarter, whether it be with Dennis Schroeder or uh, you know they have Shea Gilders. They have so many different guys. That, that that can get a bucket. Oh, Gallinari was knocking down shots. They have so many different guys that they can go to in the clutch, and they just they're just not afraid of the moment. So, in this situation right here, I see I see Houston coming back and, and playing much better than they did this guy. I see Russell Westbrook getting his legs under because people got to remember. I mean, I'm not really as surprised that Westbrook hasn't looked as good in these last couple games. I am surprised that Mike D'Antoni decided to go to him in the fourth quarter as much as he did in these in, in, in this last game because, you know, you have someone like James Harden who was absolutely cooking the first the first few games of this series. And then, then all of a sudden Russell Westbrook comes in and he's getting a majority touches in the fourth quarter, the last stretch of the game when it's close. That ball needs to go to James Harden. So, yeah, I know you want to work the kinks out. Yeah, I know you want to get the rust out of him. And I, and I think that that's, what, that's why we've seen Westbrook struggle is because you can't just take four games off in the playoffs and sometime in the bubble and just automatically come back into tight competition and all look like your normal self. There's going to be some games of rust that's going to come in that's, that he's going to have to get out of his system before he looks like the Russell Westbrook that we're used to seeing. Maybe this is the game seven that he needs to come out and, and have a great game, great, get great game for him. But I see the Houston Rockets winning this game. I know OKC has been tough. They've been gritty. They they they've they've really shown a lot of heart and they've shown the impediment of what the the makeup of this team is and Billy Donovan deserves a lot of credit for that. But at the same time, this Houston Rockets team is deep. This Houston Rockets team is hungry. This Houston Rockets team understands the magnitude of this moment. They cannot lose this series knowing that Chris Paul was somebody they just got rid of for Western Westbrook this year. It the narrative it just looks it looks bad on all levels. James Harden and these guys are are, are aware of the moment that they're aware of what's, what's going on, and I see them closing this game out. It, it could potentially be a dogfight late, late down the stretch. I see Houston pulling away in the last five minutes of the game to close out the deal and, and send them to the second round against the Los Angeles Lakers. And speaking of the Los Angeles Lakers, they await their opponent. Game seven tomorrow night. 
for the Rockets and the Thunder. And we shift gears to the Eastern Conference now, Mike. This is I've been talking about the Miami Heat, about potentially <laughs> this matchup that they've been awaiting. And boy, did yeah. Jimmy Butler, or should I say Jimmy Buckets, came out in game one and put his stamp into that. Uh, Miami, I thought they came out sluggish. I thought they came out really porous in that first quarter. They gave up 40 points. But since then, Mike, they swarmed, and I mean swarm Giannis Antetokounmpo. Only 12 shots, Mike. You can't you can't say that for Giannis Antetokounmpo a lot of times. Yep. 12 shots, 18, 18 points overall. Middleton and Brooke Lopez did their jobs. That's the added. That's the others that we've been waiting. Is Milwaukee for real? Is Are the others are going to step up? And they did their job. But it, I, I thought Miami, when you put Crowder and Iguodala and then you swarm that paint with Bam Adebayo and you also have guys coming help side like Jimmy Butler. I thought they did a fantastic job slowing down Giannis in game one. And then Jimmy Butler and Hero Lake playing hero ball, <laughs> should we say, in Miami. Uh, Miami's for real. And, hmm. and I have them winning in this series. And and Mike, I thought I think they shown the blueprint on how to do that in game one. Yeah, it was a, it was a great game one. Um, you know, you saw you saw the the Milwaukee Bucks come out firing, putting up forty points in the first quarter. But I, after that, you know, they only scored 60, 64 points the rest of the way. I mean, this this Miami defense, like you said, was very swarming for the last three quarters of this ball game. They really um they really tightened up after the after that after that uh, hot shooting start. For the Milwaukee Bucks, Chris Middleton was amazing. Like you said, he had 21 points in the first half. He was absolutely sensational. But one of the one of the key things that happened in this game that I don't see happening throughout the rest of the series on a consistent basis is that Giannis got in foul trouble early. In the first half, he had three fouls. He had to sit out the last uh, 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 the last few minutes of the of the second quarter, and th- those were key pivotal moments that uh, Milwaukee had a chance to probably break away a little bit based on how Middleton was playing and others. So. It, 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 it was a very good game. Jimmy Butler was on point. He was absolutely sensational. He came out and said that, uh, you know, he he started to knock down a few shots. And you know how the NBA players go. When they get in a certain rhythm, they get in a certain zone. Some, sometimes it, they'll have days where the ball just – they just can't miss. They feel like they're shooting in the ocean. And that's what it looked like Jimmy Butler was shooting. He's one of those guys that if the game is tight, you put the ball in his hands, he can close the deal for you. He's always been a closer. He was like that in Philly. He was like that in Chicago. He's been like that his entire career, Minnesota. He's always been a, a, that closer type of deal. And with the pieces that they have around him, with the shooters they have around him, with the veteran leadership off the bench from Iguodala or Udonis Haslam, with those mentality, with the head coach that they have, this is a special ball club that can eat. This This series is easily going seven to me, Sebi. Easily going seven. It's going to take a seven-game series to decide a winner in this one. And, um, yeah, game game one was a was a strong impediment to let to let the Milwaukee Bucks know that Miami is here, and they're not just here to to get beat in five games. They're not here to just get beat uh to beat down like you beat down the Orlando Magic. No, this is a this is a, a special basketball club on all levels that has veteran leadership. They have uh, uh leadership. They have wing defenders. They have everything you need to to win it to to possibly win a championship. And the, 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 they let the Milwaukee Bucks know. By, by giving them the first punch in the face in game one, that they are here and that they are ready. And um, this movie, like, like you said, I'm glad you said pack the pain against Giannis because against Giannis, you saw one-on-one, obviously nobody can do nothing with Giannis. But, you have, but when you have a size disadvantage like the Miami Heat, you have to gang rebound, you have to gang, you have to trap the paint, and that's exactly what they did. And if they continue that formula against Giannis, it's going to be tough for them. But I still see Giannis, uh, I still see 
the Milwaukee Bucks winning the series moving forward because I don't see Giannis getting in foul trouble as much as he did. And I see him having a much more dominant performances than, than, than we saw in game one. Giannis Antetokounmpo, the reigning defensive player of the year that he just picked up a week ago. We'll see if he can get and stay out of foul trouble for sure. But the gritty, feisty, the, the pack of wolves, the pack of dogs that the Miami Heat are, they're going to make it very gritty for them for sure there um, on those matchups here. As you guys have noticed, we haven't talked about one series. But... That'll be arranged in our next segment here. Luca Rosano, our special guest from Raps Report from Toronto's Finest, joins us. And a day in week of sports where Chadwick Boseman is deceased. And now John Thompson has passed away. We'll be back. You're listening to the Seven Podcast Radio Show on WNSC Radio. Back here inside the studio Z in the Sevy Podcast Radio Show. Our next guest, a familiar cast that's been with me for sure, Luca Rosano, not Luca Doncic. He claims that all Lucas are, uh, you know, if your name is Luca, you got to be special, which you are. <laughs> but uh, we're pleased to have you on the show uh, from uh, the Luca Rosano Show. How are you today, my man? How's it going, guys? As always, it's a, a, a privilege to be on the show. It's going going well, brother. It's good to have you, man. No, for sure. Thanks for having me, guys. 100%. And uh, previously on our last uh, segment here, we were talking about the NBA playoffs, and we kind of covered the uh, three semis that we assume that is going to occur, of course. Now, we left the last one because my beloved Green Monsters, my Boston Celtics, against <laughs> your Raptors here for sure. This is We go back and forth and bicker about this. A lot, Mike. Uh, a lot, excuse me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, game one, Boston took care of business. They did what they had to do. Obviously, Pascal Siakam got in foul trouble early. And I've seen the video that you mentioned about him, how he has to step up and be the man. Talk to us about that. And, uh, you know, Pascal Siakam last year being second fiddle to Kawhi Leonard. Now, basically, the evolution of his game and him having to understand that he's the guy that has to have the ball late. No, 100%. And, and just point blank, I mean, Pascal Siakam has to be better. I mean, there's no excuses that, you know, your team's best player is uh, shooting horribly from the field. Um, he didn't look comfortable out there. He was starting his post-ups 15 feet away from the basket. Uh, he was parked outside the three-point line. And when he was finally trying to get a little bit of dribble print, a penetration inside, he was just rushing everything at the rim. Like nothing came uh, easy for him and, and nothing was flowing for him offensively. And if Pascal Siakam is going to play like that the rest of the way, the Boston Celtics are going to absolutely annihilate the Raptors uh, for this series. I mean, Pascal Siakam, I said on my show that he was going to be the biggest X factor for this Raptors team, that he needed to consistently bring it every single game to have a chance to beat a very talented Boston Celtics squad. Um, so if he's, you know, going to continue to have these types of performances where he just looks lost out there, 
because that's literally how we looked in game one. Uh, the Raptors are going to have a tough time to win. Now, the Raptors did shoot horribly from the field, and I guarantee you they won't shoot that bad the rest of the way in the series. I mean, they were just completely lost out there. Like, nothing was going in. Uh, 25% from three, I believe, and 33% from the field. Fred Shaw wasn't falling. Uh, a lot of guys were struggling. I mean, our best player was Serge Ibaka from off the bench. Uh, you know, uh, our, our starting five didn't get anything going. Marcus Saul as well. He looked like a pylon out there. So the Raptors just had a very bad game one. But what's alarming is this isn't the first time they looked flat out awful against the Boston Celtics. I mean, just a few weeks ago in the same bubble, um, you know, we got whooped again. So uh, this Raptors team, um, they're going to have to win tonight's first quarter. And if they get off to another slow start, the Celtics are going to make them pay once again. Yeah, mm-hmm. no doubt for sure about that. I want to talk to you about Nick Nurse um, winning a title in his first year at home um, for, with the Toronto Raptors. It does help to have the luxury of a Kawhi Leonard. But we understand the tactician that he is, especially defensively um, and obviously winning coach of the year. But in this series, Luca, I don't think the coaching advantage is, is far off. I, I think Brad Stevens is as good, a known commodity. He hasn't won one of the accolades that, Nick Nurse has, but I think the coaching advantage is pretty even in this series. And obviously, we saw what Brad did in game one. Is there adjustments that need to be made by Nick Nurse come game two? I think he's got to play his bench guys more. And I know a lot of people are calling for him to bring in a guy like Matt Thomas uh, just to, you know, get the flow uh, going. Uh, even, you know, bring in a guy like Chris Boucher. Terrence Davis only had 13 minutes of action. I mean, I was very surprised that Nick Nurse didn't you know, roll the dice a little bit and try to get a second unit in. Because I think the Raptors do have a clear, uh, distinct advantage with their second unit production against Boston's. And uh, they didn't do enough rolling the dice. Um, as far as that statement you made about uh, uh, Coach Brad Stevens, I completely agree. I think he is one of the best coaches in the NBA. I highly endorse him. And he, you know, does a wonderful job every time he takes on this Raptors team. And I think that's what makes, uh, you know, Coach Stevens and, and Nick Nurse so great that they are able to make, adjustments key adjustments from game to game um but yeah for from Nick Nurse's standpoint I want to see him you know get the bench involved a lot more and uh, I want his guys to be a lot more aggressive and you know if your shot's not falling I would have liked the Raptors to attack the paint more and uh, that wasn't obviously the case in uh, in game one Luca Rosano on the panel with us today Mike go ahead Luca what's going on man I I wanted to talk to you about the about this Raptors team because like like you said We've seen situations where in game one, you might have a team where that's just absolutely knocking down everything. And a team when, uh, like, like the Boston Celtics and a team like the Toronto Raptors that just couldn't buy a shot. And, and then you see adjustments being made in the series start to slow down later on, later on as, as the series goes on. Do you see this as, as one of these situations that just the Boston Celtics were absolutely on fire? Everything they threw up in game one, they couldn't miss. And Toronto, Toronto's not going to shoot that bad the rest of the series. So is it one of those situations where you see them shooting much better? You see them getting in much better situations? Like you said, Siakam got in foul troubles. He had three fouls in the first quarter. So that's, that's not a recipe that's going to happen continuously. Is that something that you see um, changing and getting better moving forward? Yeah, uh, obviously Siakam having those early fouls hurt us. And another thing, Mike, yeah, it's uh, an anomaly that the Raptors will shoot better. Like, we had a ton of open looks. The ball just wasn't going in. I mean, Fred Van Vliet, how many times do we see him missing so many threes? He's usually money from beyond the arc. Uh, Norman Powell, he wasn't hitting the shots that he normally makes. So, um, yeah, 
I think the Raptors will shoot the ball a lot better. Another thing, too, you got to factor in is this was the Raptors' first game since last Sunday, so they were off a week. But at the same time, the Celtics were off the same amount of days as well. Um, the Raptors just look a little bit sloppy in this one. They look not fatigued, but they just look to be a team, you know, out of rhythm. Um, so I'm hoping because they had that, you know, game one under their belt, uh, they'll come out in game two with, uh, you know, a lot more efficiency. And uh, sometimes that's what it comes down to, man. Like you can have all the open looks in the world, but if they're not falling, that's what's going to separate the winners and the losers. Exactly. And and and, and I'm, I'm glad you said that it, it took the it, like both, both teams had a week off because, you look at a situation where the Toronto Raptors had to play the Brooklyn Nets. weren't really a, weren't really a, a, a tough defensive team, but offensively could put up some points. So they didn't have the, that that test. But then you have to look at the Boston Celtics, who went against a tough, gritty defensive uh, a defensive team in the Philadelphia 76ers. Do you feel like coming into this series, the Celtics were more prepared the, uh, for for the defensive pressure that, that the Toronto Raptors would bring to them, as compared to what Toronto was was um, had to go up against in Brooklyn coming into this series? I think so. And that's a really good point, Mike, because, you know, the Raptors did play against a Nets team that they were significantly better. Uh, Obviously, the Nets were missing, you know, so many key pieces of their team. And I feel like it was a bit of an overreaction for many people that looked at the Raptors beatdown of the Nets (laughs) and said, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is how like this team's finals bound. Like they were jumping way too ahead of themselves. Whereas, you know, we we beat a team. We beat up on a team that we're supposed to beat. It's like the Bucks beating the Magic. Um, and, you know, even the Celtics taking care of business against the Ben Simmons-less uh, Sixers. So uh, the Raptors, you know, looking at the bubble, they did have some impressive wins against stiff competition. Uh, the Lakers and uh, the Heat being the two biggest that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing, too, is this Raptors team, they need to start playing better against, you know, the better squads in the NBA. So, again, you know, going up against the Celtics team that now has had our number, uh, they've won four of the five meetings. It, it is problematic. And I think more so than anything, that's not really being talked about. I think it's mental for this team too, going up against the Celtics team. The fact that the Celtics continuously are beating up on them and these aren't closed games by any stretch. Um, you got to think and wonder how much of it is, you know, the mental that uh, these guys are in their head. And I mean, the Celtics look very calm, cool and collected in that game one. Uh, these guys were having a good time on the sideline. These guys were, you know, laughing, joking around. So that looked to me uh, like a team that did not fear the defending champions. So the Raptors need to come in better prepared mentally. And, uh, yeah, they got to they gotta take this, this game seriously. Like I said, like tonight's game, uh, if the Raptors don't win the first quarter, uh, it's going to be hard for them to win the game, in my opinion. Right. I agree there with you. And, and that was my next question. Uh, uh, Luca, but obviously Mike beat me to it. Um, great minds <laughs> think alike. But I, 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 as a Celtics fan, as a Celtic advocate, I felt that in a weird way, everybody's going to look at 4-0. We, we swept the Ben Simmons list, uh, uh, Sixers. We did what we had to do. But in a weird way, I thought that series prepared us for mm-hmm. the Toronto Raptors. And here's why. Because in this series, we're going to have to go against the girth inside in the interior of our defense, like a Marcus or with an Ibaka or some of these bigs that we had. Well, I thought Joel Embiid and Horford, they didn't play all the time, but there were spurts that they played together. And we held our own against that. And I thought that in a physical, physical series like that, where we know the Celtics and the, and the Sixers, they, they have rivalries dating back to the 80s. Both teams hate each other. To win and play in a series like that prepared us for what we were going to go up against with the Raptors. Now, obviously, we understand we're still smaller than them inside, 
But I thought Tice, who had 15 rebounds, I thought, uh, you know, Robert Williams, who had 10 rebounds, held their own because Joel Embiid and Horford helped us prepare for what we're going up against later on in the postseason. Even Tobias Harris um, kind of beat us up on the boards um, in that first round matchup. So what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a very good point, and I agree. If you look at the rebounding battle, too, in, in the last game, I mean, the Celtics were plus 10 on the glass. And, yeah, Tice had a really solid game, and that's a guy that doesn't get enough love, I think, on, on the Celtics, you know, having 15 rebounds, like you said. And, yeah, that is very true. I mean, you know, the Sixers were without Ben Simmons, but they still had everybody else in check. You know, they still had to go against the size, like you said, of an Al Horford, of a Joel Embiid. So they were ready for the Raptors' physical play and all those big bodies inside. And Marcus Saul is another guy that needs to be a lot better. I mean, you know, I went at it uh, with Siakam in that video, as you mentioned, Sebi, uh, earlier. Marcus Saul is another guy that has to, you know, contribute out there because he right now is just, you know, you know, been useless for a, a lack of a better way to put it. Um, you know, he wasn't rebounding effectively. He wasn't spreading the f- uh, floor effectively. He was just, you know, basically camping from three-point land and bailing the, the Celtics out. Uh, defensively every time he was doing that. So the Celtics did a great job of, of being very physical with the Raptors, winning the rebounding battle. And again, yeah, that can speak volumes to the fact that in the first round, uh, clearly the Celtics had the much tougher opponent and the much tougher matchups uh, than the Raptors did as they essentially went against the Nets' B team. What I've noticed, too, um, in the last two or three seasons is when we talk about some of the more premier backcourts in the NBA, we talk about McCullum and Dame. We talk about Steph Curry and and, and and Clay Thompson, but quietly Van Vliet and Larry has been very underrated. And I think that their stock should be a little bit higher because I believe they do it both ends of the floor, Luca. Not only offensively, we know the presence that Larry and Van Vliet can put pressure on you offensively, but defensively, the way that they can get up and in uh, a bigger or smaller guard skin and, and their ball pressure that can create turnovers. And we know Toronto is number one in the league and transition points. So talk to us about how great that backcourt is. I don't think the world knows. That backcourt is really good, and it's severely underrated, uh, like you said, because those guys play on both sides of the court. I mean, Fred Van Vliet, he's undersized, but he's quickly become, you know, one of the best at his position of, of guarding that position. We saw the magnificent job he did last year in the NBA Finals against Steph Curry yep. and Kyle Lowry. Yep. He's going to give it to you all. I mean, he's probably one of the most guys that doesn't get enough love because obviously we like to poke fun, you know, when he has those uh, bad games where, you know, he drops zero points in the postseason as he did in game one last year. But there, it's the little things that Kyle does that goes unnoticed. You know, he makes everybody around him better. It's the heart. It's the hustle. It's the will never to give up. Like, he is the bulldog. He is the engine of this team. And, and Fred Van Vliet, going back to him, he's super, super talented defensively. And then when his offense is on, he's one of the best shooters in the league when he is on, in my opinion. Um, but going back to that game one, that is why the Celtics had so much success, too. I mean, you look at Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart, they outplayed the Raptors backward. And that was an area yep. that I believe the Raptors needed to win to also, you know, give them a good shot to win along with Siakam obviously stepping up. And, yeah, they, they definitely outplayed him, man. You know, Kemba Walker, Marcus Smart, those guys played a fantastic game on both sides throughout. And, obviously, Fred Van Vliet struggled. And uh, Kyle Lowry, uh, uh, he was making a lot of uh, careless turnovers early on. Like, he was another guy that didn't look like he was – um, you know, into the groove of things, you know, whether it was that like sprain that he suffered in game four against the Nets that was still bothering him, even though he had a couple more days to rest in between last series and this series. But Kyle, to me, uh, at the start of this game, didn't look himself like he casually 
you know, got into the rhythm of things like uh, over the course of the game. But at the beginning, he didn't look uh, he looked very lethargic out there. So uh, the backcourt battle is going to be huge. And uh, the Raptors definitely have to win that battle here tonight. I mean, Jason Tatum didn't even have, you know, a spectacular game and the Celtics still blew us out. So that's like, yeah, that it spells trouble if the Raptors don't get things going. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that was, uh, Mike, and that's something that wasn't talked uh, enough about is, yeah, the defensive job that OG Ananobi did against Jason Tatum. And a lot of people uh, sometimes get too hard on Ananobi because he doesn't consistently produce offensively. But I'm okay if he gives you, you know, 12 points, hits a couple of shots. It's what he brings defensively that really can change a game. And I really wanted him to guard Jason Tatum in the series. So I like the fact that that was the matchup that we saw. And, uh, you know, Ananobi is a guy that can guard the other team's best offensive player and at least try to slow them down. So I thought he did a, a very good job. Um, but Jason Tatum's going to get his. We know that. Uh, I think, you know, he's going to have a, a lot better games to come in this series. But if OG can just, you know, try to contain him and do his thing defensively and those other Raptors that I mentioned can, you know, produce for us offensively, uh, like a Fred Van Vliet, you know, who had 11 points, he was normally averaging, you know, 20 plus points in this playoffs so Kyle Lowry and Norman Powell only had 10 points off the bench OG's responsibility is an offense on this team and I always said that his thing is defense he produces for us there it's the other Raptors that got to carry the load uh offensively no doubt no doubt there uh Luca for my team I think in this series the guy that I looked up to was Jalen Brown I thought he was the difference maker in this series because mm-hmm. of we know how great he is offensively but I think it's time that we start to recognize Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown as a tandem, as one of the premier two-way players in the game. We think about Paul George and Kawhi in that same light, um, lighthood, but I think Brown and Tatum now needs to get start getting that recognition. And I think Jalen Brown is the difference in this series. Early on, he had 11 in the first quarter. Um, we saw that he was the guy that hit that and one three that got mm-hmm. Pascal his third foul um, early. Um, but I think him is the difference in this series because of his versatility. He can guard Larry Van Vliet, but also he can bang down low with Siakam and also Anobi and his versatility. So I know Jalen Brown is going to be a key component moving on in this series. Yeah, no, for sure. I agree. And uh, Jalen Brown has torched us uh, in a couple games this series, uh, particularly on Christmas. I remember that game vividly. Uh, He had a, a monstrous game. And yeah, it is what he does defensively on Siakam. I saw a stat on NBA.com uh, when Jalen Brown is actually on Siakam. Uh, Siakam shoots one of his lowest percentages against Jalen Brown when he defends him. So that just speaks volumes to how versatile of a player and defender Brown is because, yeah, he can guard a wing player and then he can guard somebody who, you know, predominantly, you know, gets his down low like a Siakam. So uh, Jalen Brown has been huge and, and that t- uh, uh, um, duo um, you know, has been very bright for the Celtics. And remember, like, this team was in a conference finals uh, a couple seasons ago, you know, when LeBron was still with the Cavaliers. And I feel that that gave this team a lot of valuable experience while they were young. I mean, Tatum was still a baby. Brown was still a baby. These guys are playing like they're seasoned veterans. Mm -hmm. And the future definitely looks bright for the Celtics. So I really think that run that they had and that epic uh, series that they had against LeBron James really did them wonders and, you know, better prepare them mentally and physically for moments like this. So, so who is that X factor for the Raptors? Is it a Norman Powell? Is it a guy off the bench like that? Or, or is it Larry? Or is it Gasol who has the decisive matchup inside against Tice? Like, who's that guy that you're looking towards? 
It's not a guy, Sebi. It's a unit. It's the Raptors bench. Uh, you, the Raptors bench literally put up 100 points against the Nets, which was a record. I'm looking at it here. You know, the Raptors bench scored less than 50 points. Like, this is a team that's mantra is bench mob. They need to win the bench battle. And, you know, looking at the, the bench play from game one, they did win that battle, but it wasn't a huge discrepancy. It wasn't as lopsided as I would have liked it to be. So the bench has to be a lot better. Uh, Serge Ibaka has been very good for this team. I can't complain with his production. You know, over the last three games, he has been he's looking really good. But a Norman Powell, um, if I want to get, you know, uh, very specific here. Yeah, he's got to be that that bench leader because Norman Powell had a couple 20 point games in that series against the Nets. And it, it's in those games that really got those other guys going. You know, Terrence Davis, Chris Boucher, Matt Thomas. So I look, I, if I were to give you a guy, I would say Norman Powell, but more, you know, broad is, is the Raptors bench. They have to have a, a clear cut, a distinct advantage and really all play the Boston Celtics second unit. Hmm. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, what was the buzz like in the city after winning a championship coming into this season? Did they expect to look, look this good or, 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 or were there some doubts as well about how good this team would be? Uh, yeah, I, you know what, Mike, that's a really good question. I don't think anybody expected the Raptors to be this good following mm. losing Kawhi and Danny Green. Like, me personally, I didn't think the Raptors were uh, going to miss the playoffs like some experts thought. Like, that was just, uh, that was just <laughs> ludicrous. But I didn't expect this Raptors, to be, uh, Raptors team to be a two-seed in the East. I did have the Raptors finishing fourth or fifth. I did believe that they were going to be a middle-of-the-pack team. So the fact that they exceeded expectations and ended up, you know, having – the second best record uh, in the East and tied for the second best record in all of the NBA. Like that is something that I don't think anybody here in the city saw coming. Uh, we knew we had a good team. We we're sick and tired of, you know, people saying that it was just because of Kawhi that we won the championship. Obviously he helped in a huge way. You need a superstar to win in today's NBA, but it was the other guys that we saw flourishing on their own this season. Um, you know, that helped. Uh, Kawhi Leonard and company, you know, get to the championship. A Siakam, a Van Vliet, who has really stepped up to the occasion this season. Uh, a Norman Powell as well, uh, continuing to see the progression of an OG Ananobi. So mm-hmm. this Raptors team did a really good job of handling, handling about their business without Kawhi Leonard. And they, you know, showed the NBA that this is still a really good team, even if we don't have that prototypical superstar. But now we'll see if... You need, in fact, that prototypical super, superstar to make a back to the NBA Finals and win a championship because, you know, the only recent uh, t- example I can think of of a team that was kind of constructed like this Raptors team that went on to win it all without that superstar were the Pistons in 04. So gotcha. we'll see. Right. We'll see now, you know, how this Raptors team fares in uh, a tough series against a viable finals threat in the Celtics. And we'll, 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 we'll find out that answer very soon. Yeah, you know what, man? It was disturbing and disgusting. Like, Masai Ujiri had just won the championship. He was excited that his team, you know, had done it. And he literally just wanted to go onto the court and celebrate. And obviously, he had that full right to do so. And the fact that, you know, that altercation happened, which should have never happened in the first place, it's a shame. And it speaks volumes to what's going on in the world right now and why we're having, you know, these boycotts and these people using their platform to, uh, you know, try to bring about justice about these certain situations. And I'm glad that particular footage was caught on camera because it shows people that, you know, uh, guys like Masai Ujiri, even though they do, you know, have a level of fame and prominence to them, they still deal with that stuff that you see. So 
I'm glad it was brought to the light. I'm glad that everybody saw it with their eyes. But at the same time, I was disgusted and I was very angry too once I saw the incident take place. And uh, I thought Masai Ujiri held it like a, a, a very, very respectable person because a lot of people in that situation wouldn't have been as cool, calm, and collected as Masai was. And uh, that just goes to show how classy and humble of a character Masai Ujiri is. Yeah, exactly. 100% Masai Ujiri, one of the premier owners and GMs in the NBA. So come back, we'll do a little fun activity. The Sebi Podcast Radio Show. And we are back here with Luca for our second segment with us here. Opulent Inventory. That's right. Opulent Inventory. The Apple guys. The Apple product. 20% off. Promo code podcast. Gets you the Apple product of your dreams. All Apple items. Opulent Inventory. My product partners here. And Luca, this is a kind of fun game that we like to do. It's pretty simple. Straightforward. We ask you a couple questions. Maybe a few scenarios. And then we ask you this or that, and you get to choose out of the two. Um, so, Mike, you want to go ahead on this one? Sure, let's do it. Luca, I'm going to start off first. Uh, what's, your, what's your type? Are you a, a, this or that, PlayStation or Xbox? Oh, you've always been an Xbox guy? Uh, Xbox. What's that number one game on Xbox? Yeah, I've always been an Xbox you've guy. always played over the years. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, 2K okay. and Madden. I think those are my two favorite games. Right. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Now, I, I know you're a huge Ravens fan uh, being out there in, in, in Toronto. Uh, you're not a CFL guy, but um, who's your favorite Raven of all time? <laughs> is it Ed Reed or is it Ray Lewis? It's got to be Ray Lewis, man. That's the reason why I became uh, okay, a Ravens okay. fan. What, what's, the what's the one moment yeah. that Ray Lewis just took you? It was just like, man, this guy is like all-time great. Give us a... I, yeah, like I was, I was, I was watching a game one day as a kid. Like this is how I became a Ravens fan, and I just so happened to have the Ravens game on TV, and I just saw the way he played the game, man. And like it was after he made a tackle, just the electricity and the energy that he had on the field. Like I, I love that about him, and obviously his signature dance. Mm-hmm. You know that made right. me even more of a fan. Uh, of him, uh, here's so. a question here because I know you, you got an Italian background too. Um, wh- wh- what food is better? Uh, is it Canadian food or Italian food? I know this is a little bit of a pick em here, um, but but which one do you enjoy most? Oh, oh really? really? Italian really? Food, what's, man. What's, what's, the, what's the dish? What's the dish? <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, man. Anything pasta, pizza. <laughs> Can't take them away from the roots. That, <laughs> Can't take them away from the roots. Go ahead, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, since, since, since we're still in the middle of a pandemic, what has been your number one go-to quarantine snack? Oh, uh, I've been eating a lot of ice cream. So like that, that I consider a snack, man. I can just, uh, you know, eat an entire yeah. bit. Something. I, I like yeah, that. Crazy about ice cream, cream. Man. That's, that's my style. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Cookie and cookie dough. dough. Yeah, Throw in some cookie dough, too. Some cookie dough, too. All right. What's, awesome. Yeah. yeah. What's your, what's, uh, this is a question I, I usually, I, I usually ask guests. Who are your top five players all time to watch? In the NBA. 
at all time that you've ever seen? Current? Oh, yeah. all time. Wow, that I've ever seen with my very own eyes? Okay, so yeah, I'm not r- ranking them or anything. Okay, um, I'll go number five, Steve Nash, Canadian. Obviously, Canadian content right there. Uh, yes. Number four, I'll go Allen Iverson. Number three, I'll go uh, okay. Vince Carter. Mm. Number two, I'll go Kobe Bryant, rest in peace. Okay. Wow. And number one, wow, I gotta wow. go LeBron. Do you James. think LeBron is 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 the best basketball player? We're not talking about most accomplished or anything, but just overall, do you think he's a better ball player than MJ? No, no way. And the reason why MJ is not on my list is because uh, I I was I didn't watch MJ live. Like I did more of watching him after on YouTube and yeah. stuff because I was so young when he was in his prime. So uh, f- for sure, if I watched MJ. Uh, at my age now, yeah, they right. no call. Uh, LeBron James, definitely one of them. Um, Ooh, my guy, Tom Brady, okay. uh, Conor McGregor. Um, who else here? Uh, probably go with uh, Peyton Manning. Seems like he's a, a really smart dude, and um. Trying to get some hockey guys in here, but I don't know. There's not like a hockey guy that really intrigues me, uh, or uh, or baseball. So I'd probably go with a num- another NBA guy. I'd probably go with uh, Michael Jordan. You know, the greatest. And, see, and see that's interesting because I, I thought be you'd go Gretzky here. I thought you'd go Wayne, the the goat, right? No, the goat, yeah, but nah, man, nah. You know what? I wouldn't go Gretzky. I'd go with uh, Brady and Mannion, you know, two, arguably two of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And then I'd go uh, LeBron and, and MJ, you know, two of the greatest basketball players of all time. And then uh, I think yeah, I got to still pick uh, one I, more. I, Did I, I have I, I'm fifth? not sure if you had your now. fifth. Um, I, I don't remember. Oh, Conor McGregor. That was interesting. Conor. Oh, Mc, oh, McGregor. Yeah, McGregor. Yeah. The only reason why McGregor, because I love his story. It literally came from nothing. He believed in himself and he made it, man. Like this guy was, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the story, but like this guy was literally living on welfare, you know, getting like no money, living out of his uh, girlfriend's uh, place. And he just had this self-belief that he was going to make it. He didn't want to get a job. He's like, nah, I'm going all in on my dream and my passion. And that's, you know, mixed martial arts. And uh, look at him now, you know, considered one of the greatest of all time. I made uh, a lot of dough for that dinner. Because I'd, I'd want to depict Peyton and, and Brady's mind, but also Braun and, and MJ's mind. That'd be a great conversation at a table. That'd be absolutely. absolutely. You're talking about absolute savants at that craft. That's yeah. That's what they do. Uh, and Luca, if, um, if, if you weren't covering sports and you weren't a sports broadcaster, what could you have seen yourself doing? Um, wow. I would say teaching. Yeah, I like uh, I, I I like the youth. I do do some public speaking as well, yeah. so I could see myself definitely in that environment of uh, educating oh, okay. kids and stuff like okay. that. G- giving back to the youth is 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 one of the number one keys in life. It's, it's, it's amazing. So exactly, exactly, man. One of the great things there for exactly. sure. I know you're a busy guy, but I want to thank you for uh, taking time out and, and joining us today, uh, talking uh, Celtics raps and and probably getting a little bit know about you and your your personal life as well. Um, I think that's key. You know, people see us in this industry as correspondents and they don't know that, you know, we got live too. Yes, I watch Netflix. Yes, I actually go to the beach. <laughs> so um, it, it's a pleasure <laughs> having you on um, and, and, and enlighten us with that for sure.
For sure. Thanks, uh, Sebi and Mike. It's always uh, an honor to be on your no show. Doubt. And, uh, we'll Thanks for coming on, man. Good luck to you in the future, man. Good luck to Luca for sure. If you want to continue to connect, Thanks, maybe guys, connect with Luca, we'll go ahead and uh, put his um, link to all his information on the description box below. Um, and uh, you can catch myself and Mike tonight. And, and Luca, we're actually going to debate and talk about game two post game on LR Live, the Luca Rosano Live post-game show. Hey, everyone. We're excited just as much as you guys tonight if you enjoyed this show. And frankly, even some of our other episodes as well. If you want to show your appreciation for the show, ensure that you leave us a rating and a review in our iTunes and Spotify. And remember, you can stay locked in here and connected. Sebupodcast.info link for the latest news, articles, interviews, and much more. And remember, wherever you're listening on air or online, the Sebi Podcast is wherever you go.